because a lot of times people come on, you know, they'll come on location, walk into your office and ask where, hey, where's the company, man? Like, you're looking at it. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, they, they look like, yo, where's, where, where's the man that's in charge? I'm like, yo, you're looking at it. It's me. And then they'll say, oh, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm like, no, let's just go ahead and talk, talk about whatever it is you need. <laughs> But yeah, it's little stuff like that that you have to deal with. And then, you know, some people that, you know, they might have their different views and don't think you should be out there. So you have to handle all those different situations. Welcome to episode 22 of the Water Word podcast. My guest deserves a lot of credit for my marriage. See, my father-in-law, Lloyd Davy, is a kind and gentle man other-centered, patient, I aspire to be like him. And my wife had him as a reference for what men should be, and I'm thankful for that. But what's often unsaid is that men come behind dad and leave an impression. Sometimes that's not always positive. And my wife at points thought that marriage was for the birds. Until my guest, her cousin Kirk Davy, spent a summer at her apartment in Atlanta. One weekend, he had to go away on a business trip and she borrowed his car. And he returned early and was trying to reach her to get a ride back home. And my wife didn't get the message until way after the fact. And she thought her cousin would be livid. And he didn't make a big deal about it, didn't make a mountain out of a molehill, said he understood these things happen. And just his response gave my wife hope that she could get married and would marry a crazy guy. She in fact told a friend of hers that we can get married because not all men are crazy. So my guest deserves my gratitude for the impression he made on my wife. All I had to do was show up and be functional. And thank goodness 12 years later, we're married with a family but I give my guests a lot of credit for making a positive impression on my wife, who I did not know at that time. That left such a great impression that she gave this brother a chance. Uh, my guest is Kirk Davy, and he's the cousin of my wife. And he was born in Christiana, Jamaica. And he came here when he was six. His family lived in New York and Massachusetts for a short time before settling in Miami, Florida, where he attended Miami Norland Senior High School. He excelled in academics, football, track and field. And following high school, Kirk attended Florida State University in Tallahassee, Florida, where he received his bachelor's and master's degree in industrial and manufacturing engineering. After graduate school, Kirk went to work as a design engineer in the oil and gas industry with Baker Hughes Inc. in Houston, Texas. During his time with Baker Hughes, Kirk worked on several international assignments in Angola, Algeria, Equatorial Guinea, and Ghana as a project engineer. After his time with Baker Hughes, Kirk joined Chevron as a completions engineer, working on oil and gas projects in the Gulf of Mexico. Kirk has held various engineering and field positions with Chevron in New Orleans, Angola and West Texas. He's currently working as a drill site manager, also known as a company man, in the Permian Basin in West Texas, 
Kirk resides in Atlanta, Georgia with his wife and two boys. Kirk Davey, welcome to the Water Word podcast. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks. Thanks a lot, man. Good to be here with you. You're very much responsible for my marriage, and I want to I wanna thank you for your example, man. Thank you so oh, much. Oh, man, you know, that's, that's such a funny story. Like, I had no idea where you was going with that. But as soon, <laughs> listen, as soon as, as soon as you said that, it jogged back my memory. I was like, yes, that's back when I was, uh, when I was staying with Christine. I was interning with General Motors at the time. And during that one summer, I was um, working on a Formula SAE project. Formula SAE is a uh, project which is a spinoff of the Society of Automotive Engineers. And so I was a part of the chapter at Florida State University. And every year we have a big competition in Michigan. So during my internship time there in Atlanta, I left and went to Michigan for the big competition. And I remember this when I got home, when I got back to Atlanta, Christine was nowhere to be found. <laughs> so I just jumped on the train, you know, from the airport, made my way back to the apartment. And uh, yeah, when she got back, she, you know, she was, she, she thought I was going to be hot, man, but it, it was no big deal. You know, things happen. And back then we wasn't as connected with cell phones and stuff, you know, so it was a little bit different. So it was no real, no real reason to, to blow up behind a situation like that, man. <laughs> Man, I appreciate that because by the time I came around, all I had to do was be normal because you, right. flipped the, you, have, you flipped the curve the other way. So I just came in just being functional and, and God be praised. Now we are married 12 years with, with a family. So Kirk, you know, I got to be honest with you, man. I've been to a number of Davy family reunions and the family speaks about you with such reverence. And I mean, the uncles, the brothers, the sisters, all accomplished, all ambitious, children are doing well. Um, but when it comes to Kirk, there is such reverence. I mean, I think your accomplishments speaks to some of the dreams and aspirations of your family. And I, I just want you, if you could briefly, just to tell our listeners about your family, your parents, and um, what, you know, what about them led you to the path you're on now? Well, I think, you know, for me, my parents are just my parents. Everything seems so normal, you know, nothing extraordinary about them. But when you uh, take a step back and you look at all that they've been through, you know, you know, we grew up in Jamaica. My father had a, a a very good job in Jamaica. You know, he was working with Alcan, big aluminum company in Jamaica. And um, he had aspirations of us being better than what he had, you know, or doing better than what he had. So with his, he put his career on hold to give a better future for his, his, uh, his kids. So we, uh, we left Jamaica, moved to the United States just so that we can have better, more opportunities, you know? So that's like, that's the kind of family and parents that I have. They sacrifice what they had to make a, um, better opportunities for us because, you know, I don't know what it is like to leave my home country in the middle of a blooming career or a blossoming career, you know? So my parents, they left their parents in Jamaica moved to the United States and um, 
you know, just gave us all the opportunities for us to excel and to, um, you know, to, to make the best out of ourselves. So as I was growing up, you know, I didn't, all this stuff didn't, it didn't really uh, sink in as to what was happening. But when you take a step back and you look at it, you see the sacrifices that were made to put us in a, a good position. So as I got older and I saw the opportunities were coming my way, I, I, I had to take full advantage of it. You know, I worked really hard as I got through um, when I got to college. Actually, I worked much harder in college than I did in high school. You know, I, don't, I didn't understand the, the seriousness of things when I was in high school, you know, so as I'm getting older and I'm, and I'm seeing what the real world is like, then I had to push myself and work even harder. And um, my parents always pushed me to do my very best. You know, my father worked very hard throughout his entire life. I, um, I worked with him a lot while I was younger, you know, just being around him, picking up on different trades and stuff like that. And I, that's like valuable skills that, you know, just being around him just kind of rubbed off onto me, you know, <laughs> even to this day, some of the times I'm doing, you know, different little projects around the house and uh, my father look at me and say, where did you learn to do all this? I said, man, just being around you, you know, it just rubbed off on me, even though he wasn't necessarily teaching me how to do things step by step, you know, just being around him, I picked up on a lot of these different things and it's, 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 uh, it's really made me who, who I am today. You know, so my parents had a lot of influence on my life. My mom, you know, she was just always there, that loving, supporting, strong mother figure that always pushed you to do your best. You know, she, uh, she was probably the tougher one. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because, you know, my father, he's very easy, laid back. You know, he has that typical Davy man um, personality where you just laid back and chill, you know, let go with the flow type type of personality but my mom she didn't she didn't take the foolishness you know she made sure that we stayed on that straight path so definitely they uh they molded me into the man that I am today wow wow and you you seem well-rounded because you know as I read the story of your journey you were doing sports and your regular we like to call it regular schoolwork, but sports is a part of academics too. But you were balancing both. How did you, how did you have a knack for math and sciences and balance it with football and the other sports that you were doing at the time? It, you know, it's funny. It's like at the time when you're doing it, you're not really thinking about balancing. You're just pushing yourself and, and doing the best you can. Cause you know, like for us, when I was in high school, if you didn't do good in academics, you weren't playing sports, <laughs> you know? So it wasn't, it wasn't like you had a whole lot of choice, you know? So for me, it's not like I had to really just focus on one or the other. I had to, if I wanted to play sports. So I, I, I like playing football. I wanted to run track. And I know in order to do those things, I had to keep my grades straight. So I pushed myself in the classroom to make sure that my grades was good so I could do what I wanted to do on the football field and on the track. Because I know without the grades, I wouldn't be able to do um, the sports. You know, and the, the, the high school football coach that I had, he was very serious about guys, everybody on the team, putting that same effort in the classroom as they did on the field. So 
it was a real push for us to make sure that we kept our grades straight. Which position were you playing in football? So I played running back. I was wow. a running back. Um, I was, so it's funny, right? When I, when I first started playing football, I was about 12, 11, 12 years old, something like that. And I was playing linebacker, you know, and I loved, I loved playing linebacker. But as I went through the, a couple seasons, I said, man, you know what? My size isn't keeping up with the position I want to play. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to switch out and I, I, I went to play in uh, running back. And I, had, I, was, I was naturally fast, you know, I was always fast. I was usually the fastest one on the team, fastest one on our track team. So the speed lent itself to, you know, more of an offensive position, the running back position. So it's just something that I fell into. And, I, you know, I liked doing it for a while. Um, but as I went on and got a little bit older, got to college, I had to make a decision. What do I want to do? You know, um, when I got to Florida State, it, the, I walked onto the football team at Florida State. And um, there was a clear distinction of – how things world, <laughs> you know, it's like you're an this athlete is college first. now, yeah. Yeah, this is college now, so this is not like you're not, you're, you're, they call it student athletes, but it was very clear to me that you're an athlete and then student, you know. So I had a, I had a decision to make. I said, okay, I like playing football, but, you know, looking at the odds, looking at, I'd rather focus on school. So, I made a decision to stop playing football and just focus completely on my, on my academic work. And when did you know, when did it occur to you that you had the aptitude for these, many people would call them difficult subjects. When did you know, Kirk, I can do this and I can do it well? So uh, the, the thing was, that, okay, so that when, I, when I first got to school, when I went, first got to Florida State, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to major in, you know, but I always knew that, you know, I was a very hands-on person. I like um, engineering type subjects. So I kind of bounced around between a few different things. My first few semesters, you know, just doing the research and trying to figure out what major I wanted to get into. And I looked, you know, at the time, computer sciences, information science, those were like some of the hot majors. So I said, okay, let me, let me jump into one of those. And didn't necessarily take any classes in those majors or in those subject areas. But as I started doing more research and looking into it, I said, nah, this is, that's not really for me, you know? And so it just kind of always fell back to engineering. And so um, within the first year or so at Florida State, I think it was like towards the end of my first year, that's when I joined the... Um, Society of Automotive Engineers. And this was like before I really declared my major. But, you know, I, I was in the Society of Automotive Engineers. We were doing a lot of hands-on work, building these uh, Formula SAE race cars. And um, that's when I said, man, I, you know, this is, my, this is my thing. This is what I want to do. I want to be an engineer. So I went full, full force into being an engineer. And um, the classes wasn't easy. You know, it's not that I had a knack for them. I just had to push myself because I know that's what I wanted to do. Um, you know, going through the calculus classes, the physics classes, chemistry classes, it was some difficult times in there, but 
I took it one semester at a time and I pushed myself through, you know, not always acing all the classes, but I got myself through it. And I always tell people, I said, listen, you don't have to ace all your classes. <laughs> you need to make it through, you know, because guess what? After your first job and your first interview and they look at your grades, nobody cares about that anymore. So you got to keep pushing yourself, improving, getting better as you go along and teaching yourself as you go along because, you know, if you stumble through one class or so, get a C or a D here, you know I mean? Well, the D's aren't going to really cut it. So, you, you know, you get a C, you pick yourself up next semester and you do better. So I always tell people, you know, you don't beat yourself down because you're not acing everything. Because a lot of times students that get the straight A's, they might not necessarily turn out to be the best engineer or the best scientist because there's a lot more than just academics that goes into making a good engineer or a good scientist, a good, um, you know, a good teacher, whatever it might be. So there are a number of things I want to follow up on. One was that I think your dreams and aspirations were tied to your family and your parents' sacrifice. Did the link form early between what your dad exposed you to in terms of what he used to do with his hands and engineering, or were there other career pursuits that you were considering as well? So it's funny. I mean, the, the very first career um, path that I was looking at, and, and this is since I was young, very young, was being a doctor. I, I, I always said I wanted to be a doctor. Wow. You know, and um, even as I went through school, the thought was always there in the back of my mind about being a doctor. And um, I actually took classes, you know, the, bi the biology classes, the chemistry classes, all of that in preparation for potentially going to medical school. Because I think the misconception a lot of people have is that, you know, as a doctor, you have to major in biology or something, but you don't. You know, as long as you meet all the prerequisites for getting into medical school, you can go to medical school. So I, I took a lot of the biology and the chemistry. I took all of the prerequisite classes. And I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. You know, I, was, I had my engineering degree, but I was thinking, man, maybe nice. I can go down this path and be an orthopedic surgeon. But I think after graduate school or after school, yeah, I just got burned out. And I was like, you know, I think uh, I've set myself up well enough to succeed as an engineer. So I continued down the engineering path. But um, I've always been that hands-on type person. So whatever I did in life, I knew I wanted to work with my hands or you know, have that analytical type of, um, type of uh, career. You know? um, so that's just how I fell into the engineering role. But uh, you know, being a doctor was, was one of the things. That would have been my fallback. <laughs> And, and the time management skill that you, and I mean, I don't know how it was for you, but it sounds to me like if you're in high school playing football and running track, that you're exhausted by days in. How did you balance that with keeping up with schoolwork? And I guess that's the first question. And I, I guess my follow-up would then be, if, if that was successful, did it carry over into college or was it college where you learned time management skills? So in high school, I would say the time management was kind of built into the way our foot, our coaches had things set up. So 
we'd have our full day of classes or, you know, going through regular routine classes in high school. And then once you were finished with classes, we would have what we call study hall. And this would be for about an hour, hour and a half before football practice. So that's where you're knocking out your study and getting your homework done and stuff like that. And then you go to football practice, you practice for a couple hours. By say 6.30, 7 o'clock, you're, you're done in your home. So before we even got onto the field, you know, we got that, uh, that time to, to do the work. Um, now, once I, get on, once I got onto college, you know, I, I, I was just telling a friend about this a couple of days ago, as a matter of fact. It's like when I got to college, I found myself to have more time than high school, you know, because I, <laughs> I was able to balance out my schedule, set it however I wanted to. And I'm always a, I'm an early person. I get up very early in the mornings. So I'd that's that baby say, blood, man. <laughs> I, I, it, it really is, man. I don't know what it is. Like, I just have to wake up early. I told uh, for me, sleeping in is sleep until like 630, you know. <laughs> so when I got to college, man, I was, you know, my first class was eight o'clock every morning. I always took whatever the earliest offerings on classes were. I got them out the way, you know, so by noon I was done with my classes, you know, and I would have pretty much the rest of the day to do whatever studying, whatever homework and stuff like that I needed to do. So the, the time management wasn't never really an issue there for me in school, you know, but uh, yeah, I always, uh, I think it's just it's just something that my parents always pushed in us, you know. Early bird catches the worm. That was something we heard all the time when we was growing up. So I was just always waking up very early, you know. It's just it was just a part of our house. And so now you're in college and you are making moves towards engineering courses and maybe an engineering career. How did you decide? What was the process like deciding which aspect of engineering you wanted to go in? Because, and I'll ask you later on to just guide me through each aspect because I see a number of different engineering fields in your bio. But how did you make the decision? What was that path it, like? It was, it was funny because I, I kind of always knew, uh, like, so there was a mechanical engineering path, a civil engineering path, and then, and then there, there was the industrial and manufacturing engineering path. Those were the three that I was actually interested in. And uh, in addition to those, my school also offered um, electrical engineering and chemical engineering, but those never crossed my, you know, never crossed my mind. So with the civil engineering thing, that was a lot of the kind of work I saw my father doing growing up, you know, building houses, renovating houses, doing all of that type of stuff. So there was a lot of civil engineering aspect to those, to that. So that was, you know, a natural, a natural fit for me. But I was always very interested in how, in the mechanics of things, how cars work, you know, how, how different machines work um, and industrial processes, you know, going through and watching things being manufactured, watching things being made. So going up into my freshman, my sophomore year in college, I was, a mechanical engineer. Uh, you know, I was taking the mechanical engineering courses, but um, after my first semester as a mechanical engineering, I received an internship with General Motors. And I went to um, Michigan and worked at a factory in Michigan. And while I was working in there, I worked in the um, 
manufacturing department. So, you know, I got more exposure to the actual manufacturing processes. And I think that's what made my decision to go with industrial and manufacturing engineering. But I had a unique role going through college. I, um, I was very close to the mechanical engineering department, even though I was work, I was uh, industrial and manufacturing engineering student. I worked in the machine shop, which was <clears throat> tied to the mechanical engineering department. So I had a lot of exposure to mechanical engineering. So I picked up on a lot of that stuff. That's why I actually, my first job with Baker Hughes was a design engineer and design engineer is typically a, manuf a mechanical engineering position. So because of my background and the, the diversity of my, um, my college career or my, or my bachelor's career, I was able to, to take on a, um, a design engineering role. So I would say that, you know, my, um, my time in school, I was very fortunate to have exposure to a lot of different things. You know, that exposure in the mechanical engineering department and in the industrial and manufacturing engineering department. And I had a lot of connections and met a lot of people in both of those departments, which actually helped me out a lot um, later on. So you give the school a lot of credit for just helping with guiding you through the process. Oh, definitely. I think <clears throat> I had, you know, it's, I had a lot of good relationships. I, I was able to build a lot of relationships with my professors, with, um, with different people that worked in a lot of the departments there at Florida State, which, is, um, which, which really helped me out as I went through school. You know, I always tell people, like, when you're in school, one of the most important things, or one of the best things you can do to set yourself up for success, success is getting to know your professors and developing a relationship with them, you know? To this day, I mean, I'm, what, 20 years out of my bachelor's degree, and I still talk to my professors from back then, you know? They'll call me up and see how I'm doing, or I'll call them and see how things are going. So you develop those relationships. I said, man, you know, when, you're, when you have a relationship with your professors, it's very difficult for them to fail you. <laughs> you know, because if you develop a good relationship with those professors, they can see you when you're having a hard time, when things might be a little more difficult for you, and you might be able to have that personal conversation that will help you get through. Or, you know, they might cut you a little slack and let things, you know, help you out a little bit. You know, they're not going to give you a free pass, but they're going to give you, they're going to give you a little more, uh, care and guidance than they would just, you know, some regular student that they don't have any kind of relationship with. So I always tell people, develop those relationships, build a network, and something that you can lean on later on in life that will actually help you out, you know? Because for me, um, the relationships I built actually got me my first job with Baker Hughes when I, um, when I, when I was ready to go, uh, go off to work. So I was working on my master's degree. Um, I received a, a fellowship. And this is another thing about building relationships. You know, professors came to me and said, hey, we got an opportunity for, they're looking for a graduate student, a good graduate student to provide a National Science Foundation fellowship to. And so they said, are you interested? I said, yeah. So they gave me this, uh, you know, they gave me the application, they pushed me through. 
um, gave me high recommendations for this fellowship and it completely funded my graduate studies. And they paid me a stipend on top of that just for being in school. So I was receiving a salary every two weeks just for going to school with all my classes paid for. Um, and that was based on relationships that I built with my professors. Um, and when I was, you know, I was ready to move on and, and go, off to, go off to work, I told my professors, I, my, um, it was the chair of our department at the time, I told them, I said, you know, I'm, I think I'm ready to, to go to work. And uh, he said, no problem. Let me make some phone calls and I will get you some interviews. And he lined things up and I got interviews. I got an interview with Baker Hughes and I took it from there. And, you know, it just, it just really helped me out going, going through. So I was, I'm really grateful for a lot, to a lot of these professors that I have that really supported me and actually um, helped guide me through my graduate studies, undergraduate studies, and actually set me up for success going out into the, um, into the job market. Maybe a young person now considering engineering as a career field, but they're trying to assess whether industrial manufacturing design is different or interrelated, connected somehow. So yes, um, there is so many different paths you can take with any of these degrees, right? So. Uh, mechanical engineering is mechanical engineering is probably one of the broadest fields in engineering, right? You can do uh, so many different things. I mean, you could do an, you, you could be doing automotive design. You could be doing, you know, machine design. You could, you could do, there's just a broad range of things because you can even get into the uh, thermodynamic side of it where you're designing heating and cooling systems. So there's a lot of different aspects that you can do or not the things, different things that you can do with a mechanical engineering degree. Industrial engineering is also a very broad field. You know, industrial and manufacturing, as we were, we, we, uh, as my program was set up, we focused more on the manufacturing and optimizing manufacturing processes. So for anybody that's looking to get into engineering, I always say, do your homework on exactly what you like, you know, figure out what you like as a person, what you want to do with the career and then pick the major or the, the, the field that will guide you into doing what you want to do because, and, and then too, it, it really depends on the company or whichever, you know, cause a lot of companies have different hiring practices. So for, for, uh, for me in my current position, that I have with Chevron, um, they don't necessarily hire one type of engineer for that position, as long as you have an engineering degree, because it's such a specialized area. They're just looking for someone with, someone with an engineering degree, and then your training, once you get within the company, will tailor you into your career or into the job that you're that you hired for. So, um, you know, I, th I think the big thing for younger people is just to do your research, look out there and look at all the different um, career paths and then pick one that's most suitable for you and then say, okay, this is the degree that matches, that will put me on, on you know, on the fast track to that path or get me lined up to that path, you know? So that's how I would look at it. Um, 
if I'm going into into a, a new career path or trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. And Kirk, it's not lost on us. And I'm going to ask you later about um, design engineering, but it's not lost on us that, you know, a young man from the Caribbean with Caribbean parents is now exposed to this world of, I guess your dreams now are being realized because you are not only doing what you enjoy, but you're doing it well. How was it navigating that world? Because we use terms like oil and gas industry, but for us, it's it's a term of art. How was it navigating that world? Or I should say, how is it? Because it's still present. Well, it's it, it's it's so funny that I'm in the oil and gas industry because there was never any. I had no idea this is where I would end up. You know, while I was in school, I was really more focused around auto, the automotive industry. I did my internships with General Motors. I, I, um, I worked with Formula SAE. I was, you know, I was Society of Automotive Engineering chapter president at Florida State. So I was more focused on the automotive industry. And um, while I was doing my master's degree, I was focused on composite materials, you know, design and composite materials. And that took me in kind of the area of the defense and defense industry. So I, I did a lot of work with the Army Research Lab, the Air Force Research Lab, um, you know, looking at ballistic armors for tanks and for helmets, body armor, different things like that using composite materials. So, and all this time, I had no idea that I would even be looking at the oil and gas industry. So what happened was once I, you know, started doing interviews to go off to, um, you know, when I was finished with school, the, um, my professor that got me the interviews, he said, hey, there's a company in Houston called Baker Hughes. It's an oil and gas service company. He said, they're interested in talking to you. I said, sure, I'll talk to anybody. So they called me up and um, I went out to Houston and did an interview and it was, you know, they took me around, took me to some of their manufacturing facilities, talked to a lot of their um, engineering managers. And it was, I was kind of, I was impressed, you know, and it was like a different industry. I, you know, I had no exposure to it, but it just sounded so, so unique. And, you know, I, I saw the offshore drilling rigs and, you know, drilling, just the concept of drilling down 25,000 feet, 20,000 feet, whatever it might be. I was like, man, this is interesting. You know, so at the time I had a decision to make. I had, I had like five job offers when, when, you know, when I was ready to make that transition. And most of them was around the defense and automotive industry. But the oil and gas industry, man, that was just the one oddball one. And I was like, you know what? <laughs> let me just try something different. I said, let me just step out of my comfort zone and give them a shot. And, um, and I'm glad I did. Because it's, it's, uh, it's unique. It's got its own unique challenges. It's like with oil and gas, everything that you're like in, in my area of oil and gas, I'm in um, well construction, you might want to put it, or drilling, drilling and completions. So when you're drilling a well, we're drilling a well 20, 25,000 feet deep. You know, the wells that we drill out in West Texas, they're 
right up to about 20,000 feet deep, but we're going down 10,000 feet and then we're kicking off and going horizontal for another 10,000 feet. So it's like unique challenges and things that, you know, you, you just, it's hard to wrap your mind around. And part of the challenge of doing these things is everything that you're doing in the oil and gas industry is below ground, you know? So, <laughs> you know, everything else, you know, you, you, you know, we're, we're doing all this work, you're, you're doing all this design work, and you're constrained to, you know, a certain diameter hole and everything has to go down in that hole and it has to work. So it's, it has its own unique set of challenges. And I think that's what, in, um, you know, kind of pulled me in. Cause I was like, man, this is unique. This is different. This is challenging. So I was like, this is definitely something I'd like to, um, to learn about. So, when I got to Baker Hughes and I was a design engineer, you know, we're designing different tools for downhole, um, don't downhole production monitoring or flow control. So a lot of different things that I've never seen before. And, um, you know, I really took up that challenge and learned a lot of new things, went to a lot of different training, a lot of different classes. And, um, once I had the opportunity to, go overseas, I, was, I jumped on it right away, you know, because that's one of the unique things or, or, or one of the selling points a lot of people like about the oil and gas industry is you have the opportunity to work all over the world, you know, and with the oil and gas industry actually being such a specialized area, it's actually quite a small industry. So, you know, you might be working in West Africa, you meet people, and then next thing you know, you know, you're working in West Texas and you run into some of those same people, <laughs> you know, cause it's, it's, uh, it's actually a, a quite small and tight knit industry. So there is a lot of challenges, you know, working in the oil and gas industry, especially being a black man, you know, it's not a lot of us, especially in a supervising or engineering role. Which is what you, yes. Um, I, I'm, I'm currently, working as a drill site manager or they call they call us the company man because typically on a drill site if it's offshore you'll have quite a lot more people working on it. if you're working on an offshore production um, offshore drilling rig you might have anywhere from 120 to 200 people working on that rig and if you're the company representative or the company man which is my position you're pretty much over everything that's going on on that um the daily operations, you know, because you're in, ultimately in charge of everything that's going on on a location. You're getting people in and out. You're getting equipment in and out. And it's, it could be quite challenging because it's um, a lot of times you're out in remote locations. So where I'm currently working at out in West Texas, I'm uh, actually one of my hour and a half from the closest grocery store. <laughs> you know, so you're driving an hour and a half to get to the closest grocery store. You know, <laughs> typically I, I land I land in Midland, Odessa, and I drive three hours to get out to the rig that I'm on. So it's uh, it, it's 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 different. It's unique. Um, so you you have ultimate responsibility of everything that's going on out there. You're responsible for maintaining uh, safe operation, dealing with the people that's on location, and that comes with its own unique set of challenges dealing with all these different personalities, you know, people from all different backgrounds, all different education levels. So you really have to be um, 
flexible or in handling a lot of different different um people and the different challenges that come with all these different people you know um but being a a black man in that position where there's not a lot of us it's even more challenging because a lot of times people come on you know they'll come on location walk into your office and ask where hey where's the company man like you're looking at them <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, they they look like, yo, where's where where's the man that's in charge? I'm like, yo, you're looking at it, it's me. And then they'll say, oh, you know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm like, no, let's just go ahead and talk, talk about whatever it is you need. <laughs> but yeah, it's little stuff like that that you have to deal with. And then, you know, some people that, you know, they might have their different views and don't think you should be out there. So you have to handle all those different situations there. We will return after a short break. I wanted to ask you, um, design engineering, is that mechanical, industrial, is that a, a subset of what you do? Are you supervising civil and mechanical engineers or is it all encompassing? So this, that title of design engineer can mean a lot of different things based on where you're at. So. For me, as a design engineer in the position I had with Baker Hughes, I was designing downhole tools. So pretty much you're taking a concept and going through different designs, different testing. So you go from concept to a design and you bring it through testing to where you're able to actually get that piece of equipment or, or product into actual manufacturing so the term design engineer actually it, i mean it goes across through a lot of different um industries so basically it is what it says you're doing you know it's a design you're 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 coming up with a design and you're testing that design and making it a robust design for a final product so there's a lot of uh there's a lot of computer work and lab work associated with a position like that. So for me, as a, uh, I was more on the mechanical side of things when I was doing that type of work. And you're doing a lot of CAD drawings, you know, finite element analysis where you're, after you come up with your design on, on, you know, on the computer, you're doing, um, using the computer to do different analysis, stress analysis, whatever it might be to make sure that whatever you that design that you came up with will actually you know perform as it's supposed to and once you have a fairly good design then you know you build a prototype and you take it to a lab and you put it through actual testing where you're actually loading it or simulating loads to see if that piece of that product will actually you know meet its intended um, intended criteria or intended use so all industries have people that might be design engineers. You know, if you're autom in the automotive industry, you have the uh, design engineers designing every single component of a vehicle. Uh, chemical engineers, they're doing the same thing, going through different, um, you know, different formulations, coming up with different chemicals, different products. Um, so anything that you can think of, 
you know, it's gone through a design process and it's gone through its testing and you had an engineer behind it, whether it might be a chemical engineer, electrical engineer, mechanical engineer, somebody was behind that coming up with that design and then making sure it was actually a, a good product. And what led to your opportunity with Chevron? So, yeah, when I was with Baker Hughes, I had, a, man, I had a, a great opportunities with Baker Hughes. Baker Hughes is actually a really good company. Um, and I worked in a number of different locations. So I worked, worked all over Africa, you know, North Africa, West Africa. And um, I was working on these major deep water projects. You know, so I was a, a project engineer um, managing these huge projects, you know, multi-million dollar projects. And it was it was a good opportunity, but um, I wanted to do more. So um, I was like, what's the next step for me? If I want to stay in engineering, then do I stay with Baker Hughes or do I venture out and go to one of the big oil and gas companies? So I decided to uh, to start looking and go out to one of the oil, you know, looking at different oil and gas operators. Um, and the opportunity just came up with Chevron. I happened to meet someone who was a recruiter with Chevron. And they said um, they were hiring. They were looking for uh, completion engineers, which a completion engineer is a subset of, I guess, you, you actually, this is, this is what I was telling you earlier, that, you know, these are one of those specialized areas in the oil and gas um, industry where you you don't necessarily see a completion engineering degree at any university, but it's a position that you have to, you know, receive some specialized training for. So um, I said, okay, you know, this seems like a good opportunity. So I, I took, I took, I, um, I took him up on the offer. I said, let me uh, hear what you have to talk about, what you have to say. Um, and I received a, interview with Chevron back in, uh, I guess that was, man, that was a long time ago now, back in 2013 or so. And I, I went to New Orleans and had an interview with them um, for a position there in the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, it was, this was actually the second time Chevron made me an offer. The very first time they made me an offer back in like 2011, 2010, somewhere around there. Um, I was working in West Africa, rotating. So in the oil, industry, oil and gas industry, you have a unique term called rotating. And this is uh, where you work two weeks or four weeks on, but you, get, you receive the same amount of time off. So over there, I was working, um, I think four weeks on, and then I was home for four weeks and I was living in Miami. I, was, I wasn't married at the time. I was like, man, this is, you know, this is life right here. I go to work for four weeks and I come home for four weeks and I'm, you know, <laughs> living it up. And so Chevron wanted me to move to Houston. And I said, you know, I'm really grateful for the opportunity, but I don't think I want to leave Miami and go to Houston to work full time when I have, you know, I'm working here on my um, rotational schedule. So I said, no, thanks. Um, a few years later, the same recruiter called me back and said, hey, we have another opportunity in New Orleans, are you interested? And they just happened to catch me at the right time. My wife just had our first son. And I said, you know, I've been doing this rotational type work for a while. Said it might be a good opportunity for us to move home. I mean, uh, to move to New Orleans and I'll, you know, have that time with my son. And I said, okay. 
no problem, I'll do it. So I we moved to New Orleans and I um I did that for a while and after being there for a year and a half or so, an opportunity came up for me to work in Angola on a rotational schedule. So I was going back to that 28-28 lifestyle, 28 on, 28 off. And I said, um, I asked my wife, I said, what do you think? Uh, she was like, well, you know, if that's what you want to do. I said, she said, um, we can do that. So Chevron, they said, okay, where do you want to live? <laughs> I said, okay, I asked my wife, where do you want to go? You want to live in Miami or you want to live in Atlanta? And she said she wanted to move to Atlanta to be closer to her family. So I said, all right, no problem. I couldn't, I wanted to go back to Miami, but I couldn't really argue with it with me traveling so much. I said, you know what, let's go to Atlanta. So uh, Chevron moved us to Atlanta and I went back to the rotational schedule. And I said, you know what, I don't think I'm going back to a regular nine to five in the office because I really enjoy, you know, the traveling, working for two weeks. Right now I'm on a two weeks on, two weeks off schedule. So I work for two weeks and then I'm off for two weeks. Can't really beat it, you know? And Kirk, throughout you've dropped countries and continents you've been to. Um, which ones were your favorites and why? And which ones could you have done without and why? So I would say I wouldn't say I could do that without any of them because all of them have their own natural, unique um, beauties and different things about them. So um, my favorite though was Ghana. I really enjoyed working in Ghana. Um, it was a very, <clears throat> I guess a very laid back atmosphere. It reminds me a lot of Jamaica, you know? Um, so we'd fly into Ghana and uh, land in Accra. So Accra, the capital of Ghana, we, we had an office there. So I would do some work there. But my main location was in a, in a small um, coastal town called Takaradi. So we'd fly down to Takaradi, and that's where our main office was, or our operational office. Um, it was, it had, uh, I, I guess it just had, you know, it had a lot of culture, a lot of uh, very friendly people. I mean, I still have friends there that I talk to, all, you know, on a, every once in a while. But you can, you just had the opportunity to go everywhere and just no one bothered you, you know. It was just a, such an open and welcoming culture. Um, I was able to travel all over Ghana and, you know, meet people. One of my friends from the U.S., his, his mom happened to live in Ghana. So, you know, I went and visited her. So it was just, it was just a, a unique, uh, unique place. And I just really liked the culture. And I liked the people. And like I said, it reminded me a lot of being in Jamaica with the scenery and everything. So it, it was very, it was very cool. Um, also worked in Algeria, you know, that was, that was different because it was out in the middle of the Sahara desert. We'd fly out into the, into the desert to go to these different um, field locations. I mean, you're deep into the Sahara desert. And I was there in, in uh, June and July when that temperature is hitting like 100. What's the temperature degrees. like? I, yeah, you hitting about hundred. Yeah, you hitting about hundred and twenty degrees, man. But <laughs> I mean, it's scorching hot out here. You know, it's funny. Like before then, I didn't realize. You know, when you you see these people, these uh, photos and videos of people in the desert and they're covered from head to toe, and you're like, why would they be covered up like that? Well, it's not. You're not covered. You're, you're covered up so that sun doesn't hit your skin. <laughs> you know, <laughs> because that scorching heat. So it's actually, you know, it was actually a lot better to just cover up to keep that sun off of your skin. 
sunscreen and all that didn't that doesn't get it you need to cover up you know so I would find myself you know being draped in clothes and making sure I you know I had on long sleeves and all of that but that was uh that was different working out in the middle of the desert. You know, you'd see the camels and all that just walking up to the rigs. So very different. Um, I wouldn't mind not going back to the desert because, <laughs> you know, those, those sandstorms and stuff, those are no fun when those things start blowing in. You know, you got sand coming in everywhere. You, you go take a shower and you got, he looked down in the tub and he, <laughs> he just got sand rushed, washing off of you, you know? So that was, uh, that was different. So there's something I don't want our listeners to lose sight of. And it's, you know, what happened in your journey, coming here from another country at a young age, six, flying here commercially, now as an adult doing what he loves, flying, I imagine, all expenses paid. Yes, sir. <laughs> all expenses paid. And it's important, I think, for our listeners to see the end game because you're from humble beginnings. Your parents had huge dreams and aspirations. How did you know when a job offer was a good offer? That is a, that's a, a great question because you do see some crazy numbers, especially work, working in the oil industry. You, you'll see some crazy numbers, right? Some crazy figures, especially, you know, if you decide you want to go like a consultant role. You know, if you want to step out on your own and be a, a oil and gas consultant, you can start seeing some really crazy numbers where people will just jump on. But, you know, not everything that looks good is actually good right up front. So I think you really have to, to do your homework, do your research. You know, make sure you're dealing with a, a reputable source. You know, look at the history of some of these companies look at what they did when times were bad, you know, because especially in a commodities market, like the oil and gas, you ride the wave, you know, you have your ups and downs. And right now we're in a downturn. We're in a, a very bad down spot right now, as we speak, you know, um, we've been through these waves a few times. Actually it's happening more frequently now than it did years ago. So, Back in, I think it was in 2010, we had a downturn in the oil industry. And then things picked back up. And then back in, and then around 2015 and stuff, uh, yeah, 2016, 2017, um, things dipped again. And now, and then it came back up. And now it's back down with Corona and, you know, just the low demand of oil. So you really got to pay attention to what companies do in those times. Um, because you might see an opportunity with a smaller company. And some of these smaller companies, they tend to pay better than the big companies. But when things go bad, they're some of the first ones to lay off. <laughs> you know, they, they cut their losses quick and get rid of everything as much as they can. Um, so you really have to do your homework and look at what these companies do and how they actually treat their people. You know, when I had the, the opportunity to come to work for, well, to, to join Baker, there was, other, there was other opportunities out there. But, you know, I, I talked to people and I looked at the company and I saw that it was a, it was a good company, a reputable company, and they treated their people well. 
you know, so that's what made me go to Baker, you know, cause I had better monetary offers for other companies, but I looked at their value system and I think that kind of drove me towards them. Same thing with Chevron. There's companies out there that's going to pay more and, um, you know, they're going to dangle that carrot out in front of you. But when things get bad, they tend to lay people off or, you know, to, to get rid of people. Chevron actually really values their people, I would say, you know, and they have a, a good corporate structure where they're pushing diversity, they're pushing inclusion, they're really trying to um, make sure that the pe people come first, you know. And you know, this is this is this is this is being pushed from the CEO level. So a lot of times, sometimes, always, you know, we've had a unique uh, talk the other day actually with one of the vice presidents, and he said, you know. We push things out up top and they realize that sometimes, you know, there's the gaps aren't being filled down at the bottom or, you know, down at different levels. So they're really working to make sure that vision that they have actually permeates throughout the whole company. Um, so Chevron is, you know, with this downturn, there's actually been doing a really good job of holding on to people. They're actually, they're going to be some restructuring, which is inevitable, inevitable, but they're actually going about it in a, in a, in a really good way. Um, so that's what I always say. You look at the company and look at the, don't just look at the money because sometimes you look at just the money and you lose sight of everything else and you might make, put yourself in a bad position just going after the money. So you really have to look at the company and see who they are and how they actually handle things. So you're currently working or serving in a capacity as a drill site manager. Is that bringing everything together for you in terms of your journey? Or is there, I'll ask you that first, and then I'll ask you, or do you see other areas of engineering that you wish to go into? You know, for, for, for right now, <clears throat> I think the, unique, the, the thing about that that I really enjoy about being in a drill site manager or a drill site rep position is the uh, being in the field because I like the field work. I like being hands-on, you know. Um, so I get to see everything that's going on, daily operations, you know, dealing with the people on location. I'm there seeing everything firsthand, which is something that I really enjoy. You know, when I'm in an engineering position, say a completion or office engineering position, I'm, I'm not seeing all of that firsthand. You know, I'm calling out to the rigs, calling out to, to the different sites to get that information from the people that's on location. So for me, I, I, I like seeing it and being there and being involved in everything that's actually happening. So I've been asked this multiple times by different managers and I say, when are you gonna come back to the office? <laughs> when when are you going to come back to the office and get back into a into a, a, you know one of the traditional engineering roles? I said oh, I'm not sure. I said I'm not sure I want to do it. I said right now I really enjoy being in the field. I like the fact that I work for two weeks and then I'm off for two weeks, which gives me the opportunity to live anywhere I want to. And if I go back to that engineering role in the office, then I'm most likely going to have to move to Houston 
or you know one of the or or even take an international assignment overseas but it's going to be a regular nine to five job and I think I'm I'm more cut out for the the field roles because I'm such a hands-on type person so for me I, I don't see myself um, in the near term actually going back into the traditional engineering role now that being said things can change I'm always flexible you know and I think that's one of the things you have to be flexible when it comes to these different things you know because you know they might say okay here's the opportunity and this is what's available (laughs) so it's like okay do I say yes or do I say no so it's, it's you really have to maintain that flexibility it would seem that one has to enjoy or it's part of what makes an engineer excellent. One has to enjoy seeing something from start to completion. What has been for you the biggest project or one that still blows your mind when you think about where it started and where it ended and your role in that work? Well, there's a, yeah, that's definitely one of the best or the best way to see things through being on these projects and watching them from start to finish, you know, um, man, trying to see which one has been, I think my, my time, maybe my time working in Ghana, cause that was a very, uh, very, it was a big project. I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars worth, you know, project. Um, but I was working, I was working with Baker Hughes at the time. And um, Ghana is like a emerging market for the oil and gas industry. So the project we were working on was with a small oil company called uh, Tullow. They're based out of London. So this company, um, they had the exploration rights there in Ghana and they, made a major discovery and actually went in and um, started the development work. So Baker Hughes, which is my, um, my company at the time, they won the contract to provide all of the completion equipment for, um, for the wells that were being drilled offshore. So this one project here was, you know, I got in there early where we're bringing in all of the equipment, setting up workshops and, bringing in people, hiring people to, you know, to run the workshop, to go out and uh, install all this different equipment. So there's, you know, you, you, you have a lot of different challenges there as far as, uh, you know, handling people, handling logistics, dealing with the customer and, you know, dealing with their, dem- uh, their demands and the different needs, you know, coming up with the uh, different designs for the different wells. So there was a lot of, a lot of moving parts, a lot of challenges, and I thrive on challenges. You know, I like being challenged. I hate work where it's routine or boring. Mm-hmm. You know, I tend to, actually, I tend to do much better on a harder project than on something simple. I think I just lose focus on the simple stuff, you know. So on the, on the challenging assignments, the challenging projects, I really um, focus very well on those. So that project was really challenging, really unique. It was, it was a very big project. So just seeing that one through, I didn't see it till the completion because I, that's what I ended up leaving Baker. Um, 
after, uh, you know, after working on that project for about three years, I ended up leaving Baker. But, you know, just um, going through doing all the different design work, uh, bringing in all the equipment, working with the different teams that I had to work with to put everything together. And then when you see all of that go into a well and that well is brought online and it's, you know, it has really high production rates, then, you know, you feel a, a sense of satisfaction of, you know, that you accomplished something with all that work that you did. How helpful were the associations? I was part of the Society of Automotive Engineers, I guess, because I, you know, that was something that I was much more interested in. And I was really doing some hands-on project there. But I say with any association, any of these um, different engineering associations, um, what they do is they provide a network. You know, they provide a, a support network, uh, um, a business network, you know, just it, it introduces you to people. And I think that's the big thing about these uh, different associations is the people that you meet and the connections that you make. So for any, any of them or being in any of those associations, I would say, you know, that's your, that's your advantage of being in there is just meeting people, making connections, going to the different conferences and, you know, seeing different technology, looking at different tools and just developing that network that really helps you out as you go through your career. And almost finally, obviously, your parents, um, Earl Davy, um, your mom, they must be um, just in amazement at all, you know, you've accomplished here. What about your aspirations for your own children? Is, um, is engineering going to have to be the field they go into? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, this is, the, this is the thing, you know, uh, for me, I don't have, I, you know, and, and I think it was the same way with my parents. My parents pushed me to do well. They never guided me into a, a certain area or a certain field, right? So they just pushed me to do well in whatever it was, whatever it, is, it was that I chose to do. You know, my mom, just, she just stayed on me to make sure that I did my best. Um, and I'm the same way with them. You know, it's just, it doesn't matter what they choose to do. It's like, you know, I'm going to push you to do your best in whatever it is that you choose to do. Because I think um, you kind of have to provide that guidance without being too, too hard or pushing them in a certain area too hard, you know? Because I find that, you know, I, I think it's, it's the same with, you know, you ever see the parents that just want their child to excel in a certain sport? You know, it's like, man, I, you know, I had a next door neighbor when I was living down in Miramar and he had like, he had a couple of kids, uh, a couple of boys. They couldn't have been more than four or five years old, but, you know, he'd have them out in the yard doing different football drills and all this stuff. And I said, man. This is crazy because it's not like the kids are enjoying it, you know? <laughs> so it's like, man, you know, you give them that guidance to, you know, to, to find whatever it is that they enjoy. And then you push them, you know, you, you push them to do their best in that area. So I think that's the same way I'm, you know, that's how I, I approach things with my, with my kids. I tell them to find something that they like, 
and you you excel at it. You do your best. You know, you, you become you become good at it because I find my son sometimes he'll he'll get frustrated when you know if something doesn't go his way right away. You know, he wants to you know whatever it might be, play football or shoot a basketball. Well, if he doesn't do it the right way, he then he's ah man, I don't want to do this. Like no, actually, you know, try a little bit more, push yourself, keep practicing, and it will become more natural or you you know you'll get better at it so i just push them to do their best i'm not going to push them in one area i can't say no you're going to be an engineer i say no you find what you like and and then we we you know we'll give you the tools that you need to excel at it awesome and finally kirk i'll say this um i'm honored to know your family on joyce uncle earl greg and trisha and I, I, I am thankful for the example the family has set in terms of, you know, just your warmth and your generosity and your aspirations. There is um, someone listening who has, you know, dreams of being an engineer, dreams of doing something really major. And I think you've touched on you gave us a lot of great takeaways about just focusing on your dreams and just pushing and giving it your best. Do you have any final words for listeners who some may be considering engineering, some may be considering other areas of career pursuits, any words just to, to give listeners encouragement? Yes. Yeah. Uh, it, it, you know, like I said, it doesn't matter what area or where you want to go. You know, you just, look at look at what it is you want to do in life or what career path you want to take and then you work yourself back work work backwards you know i want to be a doctor okay well what is it going to take for me to be a doctor work i work my way backwards and then i start taking those steps one at a time to get to that end goal you know and like i said when you when you're in school um develop a network get to know people you know help others because i think you learn a lot when you're helping others you know i've always I always learned from you know i learned from people that i help you know develop a study network develop a network with your professors and join those different associations develop those networks and lean on people you know to you know as as you're going through your journey because no one does everything by themselves. And I think that's what some people make that mistake. Oh, I want to do this by myself. Well, uh, you know, and no one does everything by themselves. It's, it's nothing wrong with getting a little help along the way. And then once you get that help and you, you've made that step, now you turn around and help someone else. You know, you pull each other along and, and, and go through that journey together. So um, they always say it's not necessarily... who you know so develop that network get to know people don't stay in a little bubble you know just just um expand your horizon and 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 learn different things Kirk, thank you so much man your transparency and your willingness to share your story and journey uh inspired me it's inspiring continues to inspire and I, I, I wish for you nothing but success in your journey. And um, thank you so much for being a guest on the Waterword podcast.
Oh man, thank you for having me. It was uh, it was really good talking to you and actually going through this stuff with you. I think we'll we'll definitely have to do something again. Appreciate it, man. We'll do for sure, for sure. Yes, sir. I didn't come this far to only come this far. I hear some people saying things like, "When I make it, when I get to the top, I'll keep working hard." Until I get to the top Until I reach my goal Let me tell you something There is no end Winners never stop If you reach your goal Set a bigger goal If you get to the top of the mountain Find a bigger mountain It's the journey The continued pursuit of growth The constant seeking of improvement The challenge That's what makes life great that's what makes a fulfilled life. I didn't come this far to only come this far. When I get this goal, I'll seek more. Not more things, more growth. Constantly pushing myself to be better. I didn't come this far to only come this far. I came this far so I could be strong enough to go further. So I'll be good enough to push myself hard. I'm only getting started. This is just the beginning. I'm proud of my achievements, but that doesn't mean I'll settle for them. Proud, but never satisfied. Proud, but forever home. Proud and always ready. Proud, but pushing. Pushing for more. Pushing for great. A true winner doesn't seek only the title. A true winner seeks growth. A true winner seeks greatness. It's the journey. It's the challenge. Don't tell me it's over. I'm just getting warmed up. If the journey wasn't challenging, the destination wouldn't be rewarding. It's the challenge that makes the greatness. You can't have a champion athlete without great competitors pushing them all the way. You can't have the greatest of all time without champions pushing them all away. It's the journey, the process that makes the greatness. If you reach your goal, set a bigger goal. If you get to the top of the mountain, find a bigger mountain. If you want to be the best, you must outwork the rest. It goes without saying, the greatest work harder than the rest. They train harder, they learn more, they put themselves through more pain, more failures, more no's, more rejections. If your opponent does 10, you do 11. If they do 11, you do 12. If they do 12, you do 13, 14, 15. Sure, some of the greatest have talent. But none of that talent would ever be realized as greatness if they didn't put in the work. On the other side, think of all those with little talent that have created magic with effort. Effort will get you whatever you want in life. Fighting spirit, that's what I'm talking about. That heart that you know is inside you, you just gotta let it out. To keep going when life has you on the canvas. When everything seems to be conspiring to stop you to hold you back, but you say no, you say not today, the strength to fight back 
the heart to fight through challenges and the determination to smash through unexpected obstacles. If you want more than most, you must work harder than most, work smarter than most, learn more than most, get up one more time, more than most. <laughs>